Welcome to the sermon podcast of Northridge Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. I'm Betsy Sweetenberg, the pastor here, and I hope that in this podcast, you see what we seek to do week after week, approaching the stories of our faith with a holy curiosity, not shutting the book because the stories are hard or there are truths we'd rather ignore. Instead, approaching scripture, trusting that God will meet us there, full of grace and truth, teaching us something new about how we are to live in this world God so loves. Let us pray. Oh God, may something of what is seen and heard of me this morning be not of me, but be of you and your living word and your glory and your mystery. In your son's name we pray. Amen. If you get nervous when I don't go right to the scripture, just know I haven't forgotten. But if I read the scripture right now, you're going to be very confused why we're reading this story unless I lead into it. We're talking about prayer today, and the scripture doesn't appear to be about prayer, but that's why I need to give you a little bit of context before we get there. At the 9 a.m. service, I started by asking if anyone would be willing to pray, and I can confirm that the response is just what you would expect from a group of Presbyterians. Silence. Except Matthew Jackson did raise his hand and he said the most beautiful prayer, but he was the only one among an entire group who accepted my invitation. And I imagine that the same would be true here if I asked, but I'm going to spare us all the awkwardness of you trying to avoid eye contact with me, as if not looking at me will make you invisible. You know, there are all different kinds of people when it comes to prayer. There are Presbyterians who try to make themselves invisible, but there are people who love prayer. Maybe you've met somebody like this, someone who always goes out of their way to offer a prayer, whether you want it or not, whether you ask for it or not. Have you ever been with someone who at the end of a conversation says, can I pray for you? Now, for us Presbyterians, it usually means our palms get sweaty and we're trying to figure out a way if we can politely decline a prayer. It can be awkward and off-putting at worst, but sometimes having someone offer a prayer for you can be a gift. Someone may offer the words that you can't find on your own. That's one kind of person. But there are other people, when it comes to prayer, there are people who believe that only pastors should say prayers, so they always defer responsibility. That's many Presbyterians. There are people who think that real prayers are only spoken off the cuff. If they are going to be authentic and true, you should say whatever comes to mind. On the other hand, you have people who believe that real prayers are the ones that you've toiled over, like poetry, things that should be well-crafted before they are ever spoken aloud, because how else would it be pleasing to God? There are people who prefer to stay away from prayer altogether. I know some of these people who say, I'm just not that kind of Christian. Prayer is a loaded topic, and that's just the mention of prayer. Then there's what actually gets prayed for, and there are just as many prayer recipes. You know some of these, and I'm sure you could come up with your own. You know, the thank you prayers, 
where gratitude abounds, no shortage of reason to offer thanks. Thank you prayers are just laced with sunshine and joy. There are SOS prayers that come when things are hard or out of hand. This prayer is basically just help. Now, I'm not joking, help. There are genie prayers asking God to just grant us a few things. I was definitely praying a genie prayer this week, not only for my sake, but for yours as well. Please just let me get through worship without a coughing fit. That's all I ask. Is it too much? There are diary prayers, your monologue to God about your day. There are vending machine prayers, as if prayer is a one-for-one -one exchange with God. I'll give you these coins I have to offer if you promise to disperse that. This list could go on. There are all sorts of recipes that we have developed for praying, usually without even knowing it. But today I want to talk about a particular type of prayer, praying in the face of suffering. Because suffering is so often the thing that drives us to prayer in the first place, isn't it? This has certainly been true in my life. I imagine it is true for some of you as well whether it is your own suffering or the suffering of someone you love. Maybe this week you found yourself thinking about prayer more than you normally do as images of war and violence continued to pour out of Israel and Palestine. Suffering usually causes us to turn to prayer. And when it comes to suffering, there are essentially three prayers we can pray. Three recipes, if you will, and they're easy to remember because they kind of line up with Jesus's life. So the first prayer we can pray in the face of suffering is a resurrection prayer. Those are prayers that ask for a miracle, even if it's unlikely. Resurrection prayers wisely take Easter to be true. And so people who pray resurrection prayers are saying, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then surely God can completely and fully heal this suffering. Now, some people only pray resurrection prayers in the face of suffering. And if resurrection prayers aren't your first language, then they might seem odd to you. There's a story that a retired colleague of mine tells about an experience he had when he was the pastor of a small little church in East Tennessee, and he was making some hospital rounds to visit congregants. So he was walking down the hall of the hospital trying to get to his next congregant, and he passed a door that was swung wide open, and he heard a patient call out to him, uh, Sir, are you a pastor? And he said, Well, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, great, would you come over here and pray for me? He said, sure, I'll be happy to. And so as he walked towards her bed, he said, what would you like me to pray for? I think he was trying to figure out what recipe to use. But she looked at him as if he'd lost his marbles and said rather curtly, that I'll be healed, of course. For her, anything other than a resurrection prayer was a waste of breath. And so he went over to the bed and he took her hand and he began to pray the prayer that she be healed. 
Now, I'll be honest, resurrection prayers aren't my first language, and it turns out they weren't this pastor's language either. He said a prayer that he thought honored her wishes, and when he finished praying, the woman kind of began to stretch in bed a little bit. Then she said, you know, I feel kind of strange. In fact, I feel pretty good. And she threw the covers off her bed, and then she got out and jumped up and down, and she started shouting, I'm healed, I'm healed. Thank you, Pastor, thank you. Now, my colleague quickly left the hospital, and he said when he got back to his car, he did bow his head in prayer, and he said, Dear God, don't ever do that to me again. (laughs) Now, I have no idea what transpired in that hospital room, I have no idea uh, what was happening between that pastor and that woman and the Holy Spirit. But I do know this, that sometimes I avoid resurrection prayers because they feel like a setup. What if he had offered that prayer and the woman never was able to get out of the hospital bed? Is she simply to assume that God doesn't care about her healing? What is she to make of that if God can resurrect Jesus from the dead, but can't heal her suffering. Resurrection prayers put everything on God. The ball is in God's court. There's nothing we can do except demand it and ask for it. And if nothing happens, well, that tells us about God, right? Not about ourselves. Now, you might think that early Christians only prayed resurrection prayers because, after all, it was the disciples who witnessed to the empty tomb. And then they went on spreading the good news of a crucified and resurrected Christ. So it would make sense if this was their prayer. But they actually didn't pray a resurrection prayer in those early days. They prayed a different prayer. They prayed an incarnation prayer. As in their prayer was not for miraculous healing. For them, it was to seek out those who were suffering so that they'd know God's presence. They'd say, make us God's presence to the people who are suffering. As one preacher puts it, you see, up until Jesus came, faithful Jews who were waiting for the Messiah had been saying, when the Messiah comes, no suffering. See that man over there in constant pain from arthritis? When the Messiah comes, you won't see that anymore. Because when the Messiah comes, no suffering. See that crippled woman? See that broken family? See the loneliness and the addiction and the anxiety pulsing throughout our community? No more of that. When the Messiah comes, none of that. No suffering. So that's what these Jews had been saying as they waited and waited. But then the disciples meet Jesus. And they became his apostles, and guess what happened? They did a complete reversal. Instead of saying no suffering, they said, Oh my goodness, wherever you see suffering, that's where you'll find God. In the very last place you'll think to look. And so they adjusted their prayers to reflect that. They didn't pray the Easter prayer of resurrection. Instead, they prayed the Christmas prayer of incarnation because Christ had really come. So be with us. Be with the person who is suffering. Let us show God's presence by attending to them. That's not a bad prayer. 
And usually for Presbyterians, this prayer comes more naturally than resurrection prayers. When I pray for people who are suffering, I'm quick to pray that the person who is suffering will know God's presence in no uncertain term, and that through the hands and the cares of doctors and nurses and therapists and caretakers, everyone around them, God's presence will be felt and known. But in some ways, this does the opposite of the resurrection prayer. In some ways, it just puts everything on us. And it doesn't even assume that God would want to alleviate suffering. It just encourages us to act. Again, these aren't bad prayers. You may be very familiar with these prayers, and you can keep praying them, but I want to offer you a third way to pray in the face of suffering, and I think it's a better prayer for us in the midst of suffering. So often, our instinct is to try and fix things, and then if we discover that we can't fix them, then we at least want to make sense of them. But if we could make sense of all the senseless suffering in the world, I doubt we'd pray very much. Because in my experience, prayer becomes our language when we realize that we can't fix and we can't make sense of things. And that's why we need a different kind of prayer than the resurrection prayer or the incarnation prayer. And so here's the third way. I think it's the transfiguration prayer. So listen to this story. I think it'll make more sense now. From Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking about his exodus, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but as they awoke, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying, While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and in those days they told no one any of the things they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a weird story, isn't it? Usually when we hear the transfiguration story, it's hard to avoid getting fixated on how Moses and Elijah wound up there. And what exactly does it mean that Jesus' face changed? And how did they think they were going to build tents? There are so many weird details in this story that it's easy to miss the very beginning. Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. This is a story about 
prayer. In fact, this might even be a model for prayer. So how do we pray a prayer of transfiguration? Theologian Sam Wells says the ingredients for a prayer of transfiguration are right there in this story, and I'm grateful for his wise words, which have helped to shape my own. To pray a prayer of transfiguration, you need three ingredients. The first is glory. The glory of the Lord was shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And throughout the Bible, we find this pattern of poignant moments in Israel's history, in the church's history, revealed in the midst of suffering and exile. Not at the start of it, not after it's finished, but right there in the midst of it. Prayers of transfiguration recognize this. They even expect it. And so the first thing you have to pray for to pray a prayer of transfiguration is that you'll pay attention to where the glory of the Lord might be shining in the midst of the suffering and the pain. The second ingredient you need is God. It might seem so plain, but God's loving and tender voice speaks, and the disciples, for the first time in their lives, they hear it and they understand it. When we pray a prayer of transfiguration, we ask for God's voice to be heard and understood in the midst of suffering. It seems so logical, and yet I find it's the thing that faithful people usually forget. How often are our prayers holding God accountable for our own desires for our lives instead of God's desires for our lives? Maybe if we ask to hear and to understand God's voice, our prayers would change. And the third ingredient is mystery. I'm sure Peter and James and John went up on that mountain thinking that they had a pretty good grasp on reality. And then Jesus' face changed, and then all of a sudden Moses and Elijah showed up. What is this story if not affirmation that there is an entire reality beneath and beyond what we think we understand when it comes to faith? We can ask to be reminded of that when we pray in the midst of suffering. We can pray to remain open to the mystery of faith so that we are reminded that we too are caught up in the life of the Trinity and in the mystery of our own salvation and the unfolding of God's heart. Those three ingredients create a totally different kind of prayer for suffering. If the prayer of resurrection is essentially fix this and take it off my desk, and the prayer of incarnation is essentially be with me and share in my struggle today and always, both of those prayers miss the fact that our faith stands on a litany of how God transfigures suffering for individuals and communities. That's what we read over and over again in the Bible. It's what we proclaim as we stand at the foot of the cross. And I think that's the prayer that we need most in the face of suffering. Because it is our greatest hope that the same will be true for each of us and for the suffering in this world. That God will somehow use it to bring a glimpse of the mystery and the glory of God as only God can.
The prayer of transfiguration is a bit wordier than the prayer of resurrection or incarnation. I think the prayer of transfiguration goes something like this. Make my trial and suffering a glimpse of your glory, O God, a window into your world where I can see your face and sense the mystery in all things, walking alongside angels and saints. Bring me closer to you in this crisis than I have ever been before. Make this a moment of truth in my life, and when I cower or feel alone, raise me and make me alive like never before. There you have it. Three ways to pray in the face of suffering. And there is so much suffering in our world. There is so much suffering in our community. But know this, it is not too great a hope that God will transfigure your suffering. It is not too great a hope that through your suffering you will glimpse the glory of God, that through your suffering you will hear and finally understand God's voice, and that through your suffering you will be drawn even deeper into the mystery of our faith. It was true for Peter, James, and John. Why can't it be true for us too? Amen. Go out into God's world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all persons. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power of the Spirit bless you and keep you this day and always, always. Amen.